You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy Well Muslim Podcast. This is Ozma Jaffrey. My beautiful co-host is recovering from the move to uh, get her young freshman college dormer into his dorms. And man, dorms have changed a lot since we were in college because they're super nice now. Um, but she is recovering from that and getting her kids ready for back to school. So we're going to be flying solo this week. I'm excited about it. Um, I just wanted to share that my kiddos uh, have been doing their own kind of projects uh, this week. I'm super, super, super excited to see that one of my kids, who is kind of the one that I think gives me the majority of my gray hairs, um, was the one who approached me and said, hey, I want to be involved in this at school, which completely floored me because he's been somebody well, you might have a good guess of who it is now that I've shared his gender. Um, but he is somebody who would not take a lot of initiative. If you guys remember from last year, I was struggling a lot with him and he suddenly, you know, has flourished just by changing his environment and giving him a little bit of responsibility. He's also the kid that's smart enough instead of using our laundry service actually gets paid to do his own laundry because otherwise I would hire it out. Um, if you haven't heard about the laundry service, um, I don't know that we've talked about it in the podcast, but we certainly have on our stories on Instagram. And if you click on their link in bio, I think there's a discount code if you want to try that laundry service, which is finally coming to the DC Metro area. We just found out this weekend. So congratulations to DC Metro. This is 100% available to you. If you have any questions, go ahead and DM us. Um, our August series is going to continue with our spotlight on some of the reasons Muslims are breaking ties of kinship, something that we are taught as Muslims not to do. But there is a point when the impact of toxic and harmful behaviors leads Muslims to break away from family. Um, and so our next guest, Mina, knows this all too well. They have chosen not to share their real name. Mina is a queer, non-binary Desi Muslim. They serve the queer and Muslim communities as a marriage and family therapist. Yay, therapy! When they're not working, <laughs> they're traveling or spending time with their very many cats, which I love because um, my beautiful co-host is also a cat mom, a crazy cat mom, as I call her. So we're going to find out exactly how many cats Mina has. Salamu Mina. Welcome to the podcast. Like Muslim, thank you for the very warm welcome. Um, I have very many. <laughs> I you have, have seven, <laughs> and then a couple of outdoor cats that are also adopted and come by every night. <laughs> In addition to the seven, those are the ones that are indoor. Six are indoor. One of them likes to stay outdoor, even though we've tried everything to get her inside. And then um, a couple of neighborhood cats have started coming by, and they're really adorable. <laughs> and they know that this is where the crazy cat lady lives. So, do yeah. you just like leave food out for like the random strays too? Yeah, sometimes we get a possum or two, but for the most part, it's just cats will come eat yeah. and they'll let us pet them and then they'll be on their merry way. That's so funny. <laughs> it just makes me think about Abu Huraira, the Sahaba, who like loved cats as well and like used to sleep with them and everything. You sleep with your cats too, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just got so. a bigger bed so we can <laughs> Yeah, that's dedication if you're getting a bigger bed for all of the cats. <laughs> SubhanAllah. Um Herrera here, guys. That's awesome. 
So we like to kick off the podcast by asking um, people to share what they're comfortable sharing about their children, their mommying journey. And if they don't have children to share a little bit of the influence that their own mothers had on, you know, the topic that we're talking about today. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, I'm definitely a cat parent. Um, I don't have any kids right now, but my partner and I are in the process of adopting. That's very exciting. It's very long. and <laughs> yes. um, It's a process with a lot of uh, minute steps, but um, we're very excited. We're looking forward to it and inshallah, it'll be good. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have numerous nieces and nephews. And so that's the closest we come to parenting right now. And mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it seems like it's very hard to do. It is. <laughs> We're very it is. excited. Nieces um, and nephews, you can always send back, but you know, you can your kids going to yeah. stay <laughs> forever. Yeah. You know, or at least until they're ready to go. But inshallah. Yeah. Um, in terms of my mom, my mom is definitely one of the biggest influences in my life. Um, she's definitely one of my favorite people in the world and has um, is one of the people I aspire to be like. She's shown me what it like means to have strength, to have sober, and to to really try to do the most ethical thing, um, whether or not it benefits you. Do I mean? And, and mm. that's whether or not it benefits you in terms of like um, financially or at a personal level. Like she just uh, she's a pinnacle of righteousness in a way that's not like scary or fearful. Just like a kind-hearted person. I love my mom so much. That's awesome. Mashallah. May Allah increase her, reward her and protect her as she took care of you when you were young. So that's awesome. Um, That gives us a good segue into your family background, whatever you're comfortable sharing again, without compromising your anonymity. Yeah. So um, I'm South Asian. Um, I have lots of family in the States Um, and um, I'm the oldest of my siblings. And so it's, it's been interesting. It's, it's interesting being the oldest because you see how your parents learn mm. from you and how they decide, <laughs> All <laughs> what, they decide well. <laughs> yeah, what they decide to be stricter about and what they decide to be more relaxed about. And so, um, and sometimes you, you find yourself in the position of a surrogate parent. And so that's, um, it's, it's, it's been interesting, but yeah, I, I, um, I grew up in a South Asian AC household. Oh. My parents come from two starkly different ethnic backgrounds. And so that's also really interesting um, because it, it shows me how much cultural difference there can be within even just the South Asian subcontinent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's awesome. We already have so much in common because of the, you know, firstborn, second generation. And you're absolutely right. Like sometimes you do have to assume that parenting role. And that was not something that I've thought about in a very, very long time. So mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you for that walk down memory lane. Um, but that has its, has its own baggage, doesn't it? Because that's something that I've had to therapize out of myself. I don't know um, if that was the situation for you too. Yeah, definitely. It was. It, it took me a while to to, yeah. to sort of see my siblings as siblings. Exactly. Just a little bit of an age gap, but um, it's so nice to see them as siblings and friends now. And exactly. it's also nice to be able to advocate on behalf of nieces and nephews and other loved ones and be like, "Hey, <laughs> you don't want to create this dynamic. It's really not the best idea unless it's like an absolute dire need and there's right. no parental figure available, which I understand. But otherwise, like, probably not. <laughs> we can do better, certainly. Yeah. So let's get into the impetus for the rift between you and your family member or members. Um, What kind of, what happened and precipitated that? Yeah. So um, I was molested by my um, uncle um, from 
I mean, I, I can remember as early as two or three to the ages of, um, to the age of about six. Um, and so as you can imagine, there needed to be a break in um, kinship ties and a break in communication moving forward. And so that was kind of the impetus for that. Um, when you were six, how did that, how did that stop or come to an end or even come to light? Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me now as a therapist, especially, you know, having tools and, and words to kind of describe what happened a little bit better. But, um, I remember being six and I remember, um, you know, as many six-year-olds parents do, I was just kind of, uh, all my cousins were quite a bit older generally, like, um, you know, um, you know, they were even older than my uncle. And so, um, some of them. And so, you know, I, I, was there was a little bit of an age gap um, between some of my cousins when I was born. And so I was kind of the baby and I was just changed in front of everyone (laughs) as children are sometimes. And, you know, I had younger siblings, but they were quite a bit younger as well. And so um, like my sisters were like a a newborn or one-year-old. My brother was like two or three. And so, uh, yeah, I got just kind of changed. I mean, obviously I, I didn't have breasts or anything. And so, um, I remember my mom getting ready to change and her kind of ushering, uh, me and my uncle out of the room. Um, and I, I was just kind of like, um, that's weird. Well, she's changing her shirt and I have to leave and I changed my shirt and, and no one needs to leave. And I just kind of remember that clicking in. Um, and I also remember clicking in like, oh, I've never seen my mom change her bottoms. Right. Um, and, uh, I was like, oh, that's, that's weird. I just remember thinking like, I'm a big kid too now, <laughs> just like kids do. And so when my mom opened the door, you know, my uncle and I had been playing around, he had been kind of chasing me. And so, um, you know, she opened the door and she's about to change me. And I was like, no, you can't do that. And she was like, why? And I was like, well, he's here. And she was yeah. like, it doesn't matter. And I was just like, no, well, he touches me. And I remember her kind of going quiet like, uh, you know, just like a lot of us remember when we were, where we were when 9-11 happened, <laughs> yeah, traumatic yeah. memories tend to be a little bit more detailed unless they're, you know, you dissociate. And so, um, she was like, touches you where? And, and of course I didn't have language. And so I sort of mumbled and pointed something about where, and, um, I remember her kind of being shocked. Do I mean, and that was kind of me telling my mom as best I could that something had been going on that I wasn't really fully aware of, but I didn't see happening to other people. And yeah. so it was something unique to my experience. And, and that was as much as I registered until I saw her reaction. And then I was like, oh, I, I did something wrong right? or something wrong has happened. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like being really, really scared and, and wondering if I had done something I was going to get punished for or what was happening because it seemed like everything after that was like a crisis right. for a bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to follow that up um, shortly, but I'm I'm just wondering what is was your uncle like a pocket uncle type? Was he a minor when this was happening? So he was ten years younger than me, or ten years older than me. Sorry, <laughs> he's not yeah. thinking about my mom. He was ten years older than me and less than a decade younger than my mom. Yeah, but so, at all points knew what they were doing was wrong. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he was a sixteen-year-old. Yeah, sixteen-year-old no, absolutely not have. A, a general, generally good sense of, um, you know, those kinds of things. And generally 16 year old boys 
or socialized to have a better idea or have generally been, you know, uh, I've seen born or kind of explained how weddings happen a little bit better um, than generally women are socialized or girls are socialized to know. And so um, it was very clear that he knew because it had, everything had been done in secret. Uh-huh. Um, and, 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 you know, as a therapist, we have certain rules around what ages are we consider. And again, these are standards created in the U S these are like, general rules created by somebody or a group of people, which not necessarily reflective of cultural norms or religious norms for us. I mean, we know that Islamically, generally we have seven-year-olds, you know, start separating, right. And, and like changing different in different rooms. And, you know, when they sort of are beginning to get to the place where we can ask, um, they can ask questions or when they kind of hit puberty, we generally make sure that they're separate. Right. Um, and so my uncle is definitely past puberty. And in the US, our rules are kind of like if they're um, under the age of 12 or so and kind of exploring with each other, that's fine. But then over the age of 12, over the age of 14, those are kind of markers where we're like, okay, anybody who's over the age of 12, 13, 14 with somebody who's under the age of that, it's no longer seen, at least culturally, socially, ethically, legally in the US as an exploration. Okay. It's seen as abuse. Okay. Um, because there's an understanding that there is a knowledge base gap um, and there is some awareness after the age of, especially after the age of 13, 14 of what's happening. But even then there's like protective measures, somebody over the age of 21 can't be with someone under the age of 16. Right. Hundred And so um, it's very interesting how we try to delineate age things yeah. and understandings. Right. Um, it's really difficult. And- right. Because it's like, when do people hit puberty? But even in Islam, we have that like a puberty well, with girls, it's easy, right? You're going to start your hijab and you're going to separate from mm-hmm. the opposite gender. For boys, it's a little bit more ambiguous, but I would say certainly by, you know, 12, my hard rule was always um, by 10 because we have a lot of precocious puberty, you know, with all of the hormones that we feed our kids here. Um, well, at 10, I would start wearing hijab in front of 10 year olds. Go ahead. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of people have their first sexual experiences even before puberty. I right. mean, they just um, will encounter something or, you know, a hand will graze somewhere or something will be, you know, rub on something and they'll be like, oh, this feels good. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfectly normal, natural thing. Like it's, right. it's just like putting something that tastes good in your mouth and be like, oh my gosh, this cake tastes good. Right. Um, you know, uh, you know, having my back kind of caressed by my mom at night before feels good. Having my genitals rubbed feels good. It doesn't register as something with a lot more meaning until we put meaning onto it or until um, it's in relation to another person and there's other facets at play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very interesting when you see minors interact because a minor who's 17 and a half is different, very different from a minor who's seven right. and a half, right? Of course, of course. Yeah. And so, yeah. One thing that you said about, you know, being changed in front of everybody, mm-hmm. you know, in my experience, that wasn't common practice. So maybe it's different from like subculture to subculture or family Mm -hmm. to family, like to each their own. But, you know, in my experience, I can't remember ever being changed in public, but you know, we were the only ones here in America. We didn't, our huge extended family was Mm -hmm. back home. So there weren't those opportunities, but I certainly had, you know, an uncle who I grew up with lived in, in, in our household forever like (laughs) almost 15 years. And my mom was there too. And my mom didn't cover. And she was like, I've never seen his eyeballs because he would never lift his gaze. Like his Mm. gaze was lowered 24 seven, mashallah. Like 
you know, and he slept aside in the room and we knew he was into girls because he had the Brooke Shields poster behind his door. Like he <laughs> liked the ladies, but it was like, he was a bachelor, but he was like our hero. And it just pains me to know that you had such an opposite experience, first of all. And then secondly, that even though there was this extra person in the house, it was always kind of practiced to know we go to the other side of the house. Our bathrooms were connected, but it was like, you're not going to change in the bathroom. You're going to change in your room or my room per my mom's rule. And I didn't even change in front of my younger brother, you know, even though we were barely two years apart. So I think it maybe depends, do you think on family to family, like how that's practiced consent by children yeah. and the idea yeah. of their, is it shame? Is that the right word? Um. <sighs> I would be careful about shame because shame yeah. has like a negative controlling, right. um, whatever, but like their idea of modesty and consent, modesty, I think you. is a great way of thinking about it. Um, I also had other uncles who were great father figures. Like mm. they would take me for the weekends and they would change me and bathe me and take care of me just like, you know, I, my, my dad would. And so, um, to this day, I see those uncles as like, if, if God forbid, God forbid anything happened to my dad, I would feel more than comfortable going to them for anything in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I did have other, um, uncle figures who were, you know, the best, honestly, the best, there's no other way to put it. And so it can be hard, right. It can be hard when you have such a loving family and you yeah. have one person who, um, is a bad seed, you know, or has, uh, you know, doesn't understand consent, doesn't understand boundaries, doesn't understand how to get their needs met in ways that are healthy and not problematic and not at the cost of someone who doesn't really know what's going on. Yeah. Right. You're such a therapist. I love that <laughs> <laughs> description of your perpetrator where I'm like, uh, no, I would use definitely different words, but um, we stopped at the uh, results of uh, your revelation to your mom. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that that had on your nuclear and this extended family? Yeah. Um, so we were living in Pakistan at the time. And so, um, you know, I, I have a child's memory at the time and memory is like, what, like 73% fabricated. And so mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to like just insert that there, but I do have a little bit of dissociation that happened. I sort of remember it. Um, my dad and my grandfather kind of holding my uncle between them and yelling at him. My grandmother yelling in the background, kind of like, don't hit him. I think I remember my grandfather hitting him and being like, essentially like WTF, you know, um, yeah. and, 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 you know, um, hitting was fairly normal practice right. within my nuclear family and extended family. So it wasn't, I don't remember seeing it as like, Oh my God, a beat down is going down. I just remember being like, okay, some, some punishment is happening. Um, and I remember my family moving out after that, oh. um, to their own apartment. And I remember soon after my family moving back to the States, um, you know, where, where I had spent, the majority of my childhood. And so um, I remember my family moving to Boxen because they were afraid that, you know, I would be exposed to boys and have a boyfriend because I remember in the first grade, a boy or kindergarten. I don't remember, but I remember when it was before moving to Boxen, maybe in the first grade, a boy being like, oh, this is my girlfriend to me and me telling my parents. And they were like, oh, nope, we got to move back to Boxen. Oh my gosh, you're first grade. Are you kidding? <laughs> and so I remember being like, I don't know what that is, but running upstairs to our um, apartment and see him downstairs and like, you know, closing the blinds and be like, no, <laughs> not your girlfriend. Um, and so, you know, that was, um, that was sort of the reason that they had moved. And then sort of the reason they had moved back is realizing like these kinds of things happen everywhere yeah, and exactly. in all communities. And, um, and then my family's kind of um, the, the way that they handled situations changed. They sort of 
focused on the nuclear family as being a safe space. They sort of focused on training us and talking to us more and kind of um, explaining things to us and really giving us guidance through Islam, Mm -hmm. um, very much so. And so, and they had stricter rules that, again, I didn't understand because a lot of these memories sort of came out for me when I was in high school, but I wasn't allowed to sleep over anywhere um, with the exception of, you know, my very loving uncles. Um, And even then, I think I remember my parents letting me sleep over after they had been married and had like kids, you know? Um, and so um, I just remember the rules being a little bit stricter for me growing up. Like, oh, we couldn't visit people who are, who are Muslim. Um, oh. My parents became very strict. They were like, you can't spend the night um, at anyone's house. And us being like, oh, why? And they're like, well, you can spend the night if we're there. And I'm like, well, that's no fun. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> like, it's like spend- <laughs> um, but they would have people spend the night at our place. Sure. And so, um, which was fine. Like it was, it was still fun. And, um, and so they became very protective, which again, at the time I thought was incredibly difficult and annoying, but looking back, you know, I a hundred percent think that, you know, I would never let my kids sleep over at anybody's you know house. There's tons of abuse that happens, you know? Yep. Um, and it, you know, every nine minutes, you know, CPS finds a claim for sexual, child sexual mm-hmm. abuse. Every nine minutes is a claim filed, not even sexual abuse. And of all the victims under 18, um, two out of three are, are, are very, you know, quite young. And, and one out of three is under 12 and 34% are family members, mm-hmm. you know, 93% are people that they already know and 34% are family members. And so while I trust my family fully, who doesn't, I, I'm also like protective you know, most of child sexual abuse happens by people who are not biological fathers who are in the dwelling, in the residence. Yeah. And this is, again, yeah, not to point any fingers or anything of that nature. Um, Women are also, you know, having been a therapist, I also know women are perpetrators of sexual abuse, non-binary folks, trans folks as well, I'm sure. But um, it's sort of like you don't let your kid cross the street without looking both ways. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing. They they might make it, but you know, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I mean, the whole not spending the night thing is really, um, really like we're very comfortable with that. That's something that we grew up with. And that strictness, I think, is also the burden that firstborns in America like bear because we're the test children, right? So our our parents are like afraid, you know, that something's going to happen. You can't do Girl Scouts because they'll convert you to Christian. You can't go to that person's house because they'll convert you to Christianity. Um, but the no sleepovers was a hundred percent rule. We didn't have the option of sleeping over an extended family, right? Because they weren't around. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have an uncle um, like 45 minutes away, but the only time I ever spent uh, the night at his house was with my mother. And I would, I know I would never, ever, ever be allowed to sleep there by myself, even though that those uncle, that uncle and aunt set is like a sec, a set of second parents to me, but they had two boys. So it was absolutely the rule. My parents explained to me, if they have boys, we don't care how old they are. You will never spend the night there. So it was just laid out really clearly. And it was like, oh, that's a bummer. You know? So my closest friend in the world had two older brothers. So I knew I was never going to spend the night at her Mm. house. And the first time I did, I think I was 14 and it was at Zabo's house, my co-host. And she was surprised too, because she was being allowed to sleep over. We were sleeping over at like all these like friends houses and our dads were okay with it suddenly. And we're like, what happened to you people? Cause they were so, so strict about it. So that doesn't, like I actually appreciate that from your parents because I don't I don't see the need to sleep over at other people's houses. Like why? Like, mm-hmm. like as a parent now, 
I, I asked that. I know as a kid, it was like, oh, it's going to be so much fun sleeping at somebody else's house. I don't know why. It's the frontal cortex <laughs> missing part of our brain. I want my bed. I want my bathroom. I want my fridge oh, yeah. to get up to oh, yeah. in the middle of the night. I'm like, I don't even want to go to a hotel. I want to wear a Exactly. But there's ways to, to work around it now. Like, you know, I imagine if my kids really wanted to, we could go camping as a group. We could, right. you know, get an Airbnb with like multiple rooms. There's ways to like, you know, um, and 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 I, I sort of imagine that if my kids were a little bit older and teenagers, you know, inshallah, if, if I have children, inshallah. Um, I would be able to let them sleep over because then not that the prefrontal cortex is fully developed, but I can explain to them what the rules are and mm-hmm. they have enough language where they can be like, hey, this was not okay. And that's something again, for anybody who's out there listening and it's like, hmm, how do I make sure my kids are safe? One of the best things you can do to ensure your kids' safety is teach them the names of their body parts. As the soon correct as names. The <laughs> correct names. None of this, this is my flower. No code words. <laughs> Somebody was, you know, uh, oh, I like flower. No, no, like, you know. My flower, oh my God. This is my vagina. <laughs> this is my penis. These are my balls. You gotta, yeah. I know it might be a little uncomfortable and awkward and I was telling my sisters, like, you got to teach them the names. And they were like, why? And I was like, if you don't, I will. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And they were like, what if, you know, they're like, you know, my kids just say it in public. What if they do? Who cares? Like they're They'll giving their friends an anatomy days. lesson. You know? <laughs> I know. They'll go around saying vagina for two full days. And then if you don't react to it, they'll stop. Just like they'll go around saying bubblegum for two days. You know what right. I mean? It's just, it's just another word, but it's such an important word because you need to, you know, if they have a diaper rash or if they have a rash in their, you know, on their hips or something, mm-hmm. it's very different from like my vagina is hurting to my hips are hurting to like, you know, um, and you'll be able to take them to the doctor and they'll be able to say what's hurting and just that and enough that in and of itself can it can stop abuse so quickly you very know, quickly can, can yeah. let you know so yeah because I think perpetrators with a child who's well informed of a consent b boundaries and c the anatomical terms mm-hmm. they're going to be afraid to touch your kid inshallah yeah. that is the hope you mentioned modifications to sleepovers and I, I feel like yeah i'm beating a dead horse like by talking about sleepovers so much one of the ways i just wanted to share with the audience one of the ways that i modify it because i do have older boys and then i have a girl um, and my boys have friends that are welcome to come over uh to sleep over and the only rule that i have at that point is that my daughter has to come and sleep in my room because the all of their bedrooms are upstairs. And I'm like, I don't ever want, even by accident, because these are very close friends. I don't even want by accident anything said or done or not witnessed by the adults that could be misinterpreted in any way for the protection of those boys, um, less than my daughter, you know? But she's always like grumbling, like, oh, I want to sleep in your room, sleep on your couch, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, nope. Absolutely. You know, and then when they're playing upstairs, I'm like, you are not going upstairs. You can come down here or go down to the toy room, but you're not going to hang out with the boys because, you know, she's hit puberty too. So I'm like, it, you don't need to be like, we're all going to have dinner together. Like, that's fine. But other than that, like, you know, there's no, and obviously those boys are not interested at all in girls yet. So that's great. Um, And then the other modification, I guess it's not really a modification on my part. It's more education. If they ever go to those friends' house to sleep over, my boys are told they have a sister. You will not go near her unless she's around her mother or her father, like period. Um, And they're like, well, she likes to come and play with us. I'm like, nope, absolutely not. You're not going to be, 
you're not going to put yourself into a position where, you know, something might happen, could happen, could be said. And I think that that's really important to have those frank conversations. In addition to, um, you were talking about anatomical terms. We don't even say balls. I taught them straight up testicles. So um, I remember <laughs> back <laughs> when kindergarten came out or kindergarten cop came out, you know, there was this uproar. And I don't think you were even born when this movie came out, but, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is an undercover kindergarten teacher. And one of the kids, like he's asking like some question, like, you know, how do you do, how do you, uh, I don't know, make popsicles or something. And the kid, this cute little adorable kid goes, girls have a penis and uh, girls have a, boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. And there was so much social uproar about, oh my gosh, a kindergartner knows these words. Why does he know these words? Why did they, why did Hollywood think it necessary to depict it? (laughs) And it was again, because by that age, the kids should be very well versed in those words. As soon as they're verbal, they should learn their body parts. I think it's really, I mean, like the first thing Adam was taught was words, you know? So yeah. I don't think Allah SWT withheld the words for your form. Um, yeah. So it's really, really important to do that. And I think it can thwart the, thwart the abuse or at least help in the investigation of exactly what happened, what needs to be tested and yeah. looked at afterwards. Um, so I wanted to kind of rewind and go back to your mom's. You said, it was interesting. You said it was like the twin towers and I never had the words to describe. I myself was molested at four and it was overseas. My dad was here. So when I came back, I finally felt safe telling him because I was instructed that this was a secret, but I came back and I told my dad and I could not describe his face until nine 11 happened. And I saw the building fall. That was my dad's face. So it really resonates with me that you're talking about, you know, like 9-11, like that was my mom's reaction. Um, immediately after that 9-11 moment, what what did she say? What did she do? And how did yeah. it matter to you? Yeah. So it was, it was trauma. I mean, what you're describing is trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think she was angry and I think she slapped me. Um, oh, man. Which is, yeah, which is unfortunate which is unfortunate, obviously, because the way, you know, so there's two traumas generally when things like this happen. And there's one trauma that's already happened, which is the trauma of abuse. And then there's the potential, there's a potential of trauma for how the family manages it. And that trauma doesn't have to exist. And and I have no anger towards my mom for this because it's very normal. I mean, RAIN, which is um, the rape um, abuse incest national network in the U.S. Here we have rain.org. It's great if you want resources on um, any of those topics. You know they they talk about how there's no right reaction to hearing how you're, that your child has been abused. There just mm-hmm. isn't, and there's the impact. You know because it impacts every aspect of your life as well. And and, and you know there's some reactions that we hope parents have, but parents are also human reacting in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's anger. They're angry at the abuser. Sometimes they're angry at the child. They're like, why didn't the child tell me earlier? Why, why, why? Like, I, you know, it's, it, there's so much, there's hurt. There's anxiety. Mm-hmm. There's anxiety for how to handle it. Right. There's anxiety for what this means for you as a parent. There's fear. Now all of a sudden your home is not safe. In my case, right. we were living with my grandparents and my uncle's living there. So now there's anxiety of what, if this happens again, there's anxiety. Your whole world has kind of collapsed mm-hmm. in this way. And there's sadness. You feel sad for your child, for your family, for yourself, for, you might even feel sadness for the perpetrator. Like what's wrong with them? Why did they do this? You know? And, and, and these might be, de- some of these might be delayed responses to be clear. And there's shock, right? right. And, 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 and it's sometimes when we're in shock, we react in ways that we don't know. Like, you know, like I am, 
you know, my, when my sister was getting married, it was so funny because my, my brother lived in Hawaii at the time and we lived in California. So he was visiting and, um, I, I, we thought he wasn't going to make it for the wedding and, and he hadn't surprised my sister yet. He was just surprising me and another one of my sisters. And he walked into the kitchen and I was like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Like, uh-huh. why, why are you here? And my mom was like, aren't you going to hug him? And I was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? Whereas my other sister immediately ran up to him and hugged him. Yes. But for me, I was still in shock and I, I couldn't get it past. I was like, you're not supposed to be here. Like, mm-hmm. How did you get here? Yeah. And so people react differently. And, you know, over time, my mom had has had different reactions and we have, we've had conversations and she's managed it. But that, if at all, you can keep from reacting and you can hold your reaction and make it into a response. A response is something that's a little bit more deliberate, thoughtful, um, and is something that's a little bit mind, more mindful. That would be great because I, I work with a ton of people. Muslim and non-Muslim, you know, as you can imagine, I have a lot of Muslim clients just because I'm Muslim. And so um, it's how that initial response is that often tempers how the child is going to internalize or not internalize what happened. Right. So my mom was scared and was angry. And so I was like, I did something wrong. And I Mm -hmm. held on to that belief for a very long time. It took me a very long time. Having been in therapy, it took me conversations with my mom being like, why did you think I did something wrong? And she was like, oh, but I, I didn't. And I was like, but I thought you did. And she's like, why would I ever think you did something wrong? Mm-hmm. She's like, I just knew I could help control you moving forward. I couldn't control anybody else. And so I tried to keep you safe. And I was like, oh, I thought you were mad at me. She's like, why, why in the world? Right. And I was like, but again, I was a six-year-old. Sure. Six-year-old yeah. minds don't have that kind of comprehension. And so, um, whereas other people I've spoken to, um, and often it's boys. So this is very interesting to me. This is something that speaks a little bit sometimes to the South Asian community. Um, I've, I've talked to boys who have been molested, who have told their parents and their parents are just like, well, nobody touches you down there. And if they, they do, you kick them and you run all the way home and you tell us, and it's, you've done nothing wrong and you're safe, but we don't let anybody touch us down there. Whereas girls, there's, I think this, all this cultural baggage of like, well, you know, what if somebody, talk about out? It. what if, <laughs> you know, what if their virginity is ruined? What if they're high? All this stuff where it should really just be that it should be like, you're fine. You're safe. We'll talk through this. You did nothing wrong. Somebody, you don't let anybody do this. And if they do, you know, you, you tell them no. And, and those are conversations around boundaries, right? Nobody's allowed to touch you except for your mom or your dad or whoever. And the doctor, if mom and dad are there, for example. And then conversations around consent. Consent mm-hmm. is really hard as an adult when you love a kid. Like I, I love my niece. My niece does not like hugs. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, every time I see her, you know, through her terrible twos and threes. I'm like, can I have a hug? And she would be like, no. And I'd be like, oh, no, heartbroken. So <laughs> but now she's four. And I ask her, I'm like, can you want a hug? And she says, okay. And comes and gives me a hug. And I'm like, it was worth those two years of not getting hugs to, you know, ingrain in her that she has the right to consent. Yeah. And she has the right to deny consent for whoever yeah. she wants, for whatever reason she wants. Or for no and reason. So, for totally no up to them. Yeah. They you don't know? have to and give so, us a reason. Like I, you know, we of course still have relatives who are old school and will be like, give me a hug, give me a kiss. And my kids run away because they have been taught they don't need to share their bodies with anybody, mm-hmm. even myself, you know? So as a mom, I mean, you as an aunt felt so much pain. I think there was a whole year where, you know, my gray herring kid was like, I don't want to be touched by anybody. Like he's not a hugger. So I would have to wait. And there would be random moments like we're watching like a family movie where he would snuggle up to me. And it was like, 
oh my God, I want to cry <laughs> because my child wants to touch me. Like he went through this whole year of like not wanting to do that. And we never questioned it. We always told them like, nobody is allowed, not even mm-hmm. us, not even the doctor, unless you know what's going on. And unless you give us permission. So doctor's visits, we're always preemptively coaching them. Yes, you're going to get shots. We're not going to lie. Yes, they're going to hurt, but you need to do them for this, this, and this reason, mm-hmm. or the doctor's going to check your penis because that's part of your physical. And they just want to make sure that everything's okay. Like it's a, a peak and a cough and a grope and that's it, you know? And if you're not comfortable with any parts of it, you can say no, but just know that they won't sign off on your physical at that point. Our dream is coming to fruition and it's only a few months away. We've always talked about it. We always have had people come and contact us for many women, self-care, mental health, physical fitness, often take the back seat. And we decided at Mommy Well Muslim to collaborate with Moxie Living and do something about it. And guess what we're doing about it? I am inviting everybody here to join our weekend retreat. It's October 14th through the 16th, 2022. It's going to be in an urban oasis, just minutes from DC. And our whole point is for you to rediscover your identity in your current life phase because your mind, body, and your soul deserve it. So visit www mommingwalmuslim.com forward slash retreat. And we will look for you there. I know I'm harping and harping and harping um, on your mom. Um, But I think the single most important thing I'm trying to extract from that and the subsequent conversations that she had with you as you grew was that initially she did not not believe you. She believed you immediately when you said that. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. I don't even know how that would have impacted. I'm badly. I'm sure badly. My mom never for a second doubted anything I said. And that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. Um, That wasn't the only episode I've had. You know, often people who have been molested or abused or raped um, will often have that experience again until there's um, a learning around what happens, you know. And so I didn't have a lot of conversations around what happened until I was a little bit older. Mm -hmm. My parents were just hoping I'd forget about it. In, in, in terms of my mom, yeah, I remember her just looking at me and immediately it was like, I could see that she had accepted this as reality immediately. Mm-hmm. Do not ever, I don't, I don't I, I'm hoping this doesn't need to be said. Exclamation points, exclamation points, exclamation bold, points. <laughs> underline caps log, italicize whatever you need, not believe your kids. Your children have no reason to lie to you. Yeah. Always, children always. that are two and three do not have the experience to make up acts of molestation and rape. They've never, can you imagine like a two-year-old shouldn't have that. So if they are explaining and describing that to you or telling you that it happened, what gain do they have Mm -hmm. to lie? Mm -hmm. None. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, can you just repeat in your exclamation, bold font underlined, you know, 27 point, font like can you say again what we have to do as parents always always believe your kids you know i mean always believe your kids and about everything in general but let's say let's say like you know let's say around the age of three or four your kid begins lying about someone their older sibling hitting them that's that's pretty normal Mm -hmm. you know in general check in with your kid anyways if if you know if you're watching your kid and you know that their seven-year-old sibling didn't hit them when they're four and they've just learned how to like tell little fibs the fact that they're lying to you 
you know, and generally they don't lie about molestation, FY, because they're no. not, it's not something that they're familiar with. So mm-hmm. to be clear, like, but even an exceptional case where they're like, mm, my brother pulled my hair, check in with, because they're probably assuming that this is how they get attention. They're probably assuming that this is something that you pay heed to. Like what needs are being met? Kids are not manipulative. Kids are built to survive. Mm-hmm. Kids are not malicious. They're, they're almost immoral in some ways. And so if they're doing something, they're trying to get a need met. Mm-hmm. I mean, so bottom line, kids don't lie about that kind of stuff. And the little things they do lie about, it's because they're trying to get a need met. Mm-hmm. So just tune in with your kid, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's around age five, six, when they really like the ones who want to lie are like really good liars. I think all <laughs> of my kids went through this brief phase of like lying about stupid stuff, you know, it was like, I, things that they knew I didn't care about. They would just lie. It's like, what, what a dumb lie. Like if you're going to lie, go big or go home. And de- I, and I coach them don't get caught, you know, <laughs> like make it a big lie, make it worth it. Um, but even at those ages, had they come to me and said that I was touched inappropriately. Yeah. Let's take out that they had been coached basically from the time they were in diapers um, for my firstborn, definitely since the time he was born. Um, in terms of consent and body autonomy and gotten the anatomical language. If you take all of that off the table, we had never done that. At six years old, if my little liars had come to me and said, this happened to me, I would believe them. I would still believe them. You cannot afford to not believe your children because you could, uh, in a ways, implicitly perpetrate or perpetuate the abuse if you don't believe the child, remove them from the situation, and then, you know, figure out next steps. And when you're talking about the bigger gaps um, between the revelation and then when we're, you know, I guess for me, it was like seventh grade health class, right? Where, oh my gosh, that's what they were trying to do to me. Oh my goodness. You know, obviously like you guys like majorly severed ties if you moved overseas after the incident Mm -hmm. occurred with you. Um, were there severed ties completely? And if so, have there been any attempts to reconciliation? What does that look like? I mean, I, I tried to talk. I remember to my uncle when I was you know, a teenager in college and be like, hey, why'd you do this? And he was kind of like, what, do you want me to say sorry? And I was like, actually, no, I, I don't. Even by that time, I was like, I, I, that's not what I need. I'm, I was so curious as to why. Yeah. And because it was something that didn't make sense to me because it was something I would never do. And, mm-hmm. and that's stuck with me for a bit. And I've kind of let it go with something like, you know, um, it's interesting because now, you know, I'm a therapist, but right. I, it, I found myself during my teenage years as, as more memories came out, just wondering why. And it's, it's, it's something I still struggle with. I'm like, there seem like there's consensual situations in which this could happen. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, now I have a little bit of a better understanding. Some people for them. It, the act of transgression is arousing. It's it's the very fact that something is secretive. It's the very fact that somebody can't consent. But again, there are so many consensual ways to do that a lot. You know, I work with clients who are in the BDSM community and the kink community. And you know, there's ways to be like, hey, you can hold down my wrist. Or hey, right. if I say no in the next five minutes, it means yes, it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's ways to do that. But a lot of us don't have those understandings and, and, and knowledge bases. And so my family did sever ties and did it. And, and okay. this is where it's a little complicated, right? It's very difficult sometimes to sever ties with a sibling in a very open and explicit way if you don't want everybody to find out that your child has been molested. Mm-hmm. And so how do you do that in a way, in a very tight-knit DC community and family? 
in such a way that's still protective of the child. And so these are the things I imagine my parents had to try to figure out, right? And so they wouldn't have him, have him come over generally, right? Okay. Um, I think one time when I was 10, there was like a visit at the airport, but, you know, I had to stay away from him. And, you know, uh, you know, he takes care of my grandparents. And so when my parents visit, they stay at the house and he's there and he generally doesn't show his face. You know, like we just, I, even if I come visit, I almost never see him, you know? And so there's very, various ways in which my family navigates. I remember talking to my parents and be like, and this is more recently, and this is in the last couple of years, like, why didn't you cut him off? And they're like, we don't talk to him. And I was like, but you see him and that's hard. And they're like, it's because he lives with our parents and we can't cut our parents off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, they're like, when you get older and your parents are near death, it's very hard yeah. to not see your parents. And I, I understand that. I can imagine like, it's, it's, you know, it's hard for me not to see my grandparents, you know, right. I, I, my grandparents helped raise me, raise mm-hmm. me. And so um, for me, it, it was, I would call my grandma and my uncle would pick up the phone and then give it to my grandma. And then as I got older, he kept trying to have more, more conversations with me. And so I just stopped calling my grandma. Um, and, and that was really, really hard. And now she has dementia and I don't have, you know, and so that was a call I made for my, for my inner child and for myself to be protective. And I was like, this is not good for me. Right. Right. And it's, and so yes and no, right. Yes. To whatever degree. And my parents have said the moment that both my grandparents passed, they're like, we will never ever speak to him again. Okay. And so, but I needed to hear that as an adult. Yeah, because as a child, you felt betrayed, maybe? Is that the right word? You know, as a child, I didn't remember until I was a teenager and I was in high school. But then by the time I did, I remember I was just like, this happened and you know it. And why are we still attending his wedding? Why are Mm. we still here? And I didn't understand, you know, um, that my parents, you know, using their DC background and the upbringing they had were like, I, I didn't understand that us not attending his wedding would be a very obvious marker of like something you know, mm-hmm. happening. And so it's a very tough and difficult thing. I think I have a lot of compassion for my parents trying to navigate this because it's so tricky. It's, it's so tricky. And, yeah. and I, I did see, I did see them stop talking to him and I did see them as, you know, he was the last one to get married, just cut communication and cut ties. Like I, I did see them to some degree. Um, and, and as an adult now, I've gone and had those conversations. Hey, why did you react this way when I was young? Hey, why yeah. didn't I get hugged as much? And they were like, well, we just wanted to honor your body autonomy and whatever, whatever, right? In, in their own words. And I was just being like, I thought I was dirty because yeah. I stopped getting hugs. Because as a child, here's what I registered as a six-year-old. I was being touched a lot by someone who loved me. And now I'm not being touched anymore. And the touch, all I registered was the touch was bad. Yeah. And so as I got older, all I registered was touch is bad. Mm-hmm. And so I remember the first time being hugged by my best friend when I was 14 being like, I don't know if this is okay. Right. She was, you know, she was Muslim and she was a girl. And I just remember being like, I don't know if this is okay. And it was just confusing because I was like, mm-hmm. touch is bad and I'm not okay to touch. Again, mm-hmm. this is not what my parents intended. They were just kind of like, oh, we, we should be protective. We should, you know, we don't want to further traumatize. And, you know, people do the best they can with the tools they have. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like you said, they did the best with what they knew. And then once they knew better, I imagine they did better when you shared with them that you don't mind their touch. Oh yeah. I mean, especially once I got married, my parents, you know, hug me all the time now. Okay. Put your head in my lap and place my hair. And I'm like, it's very sweet. It's very affectionate, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm just thinking that 
you know, again, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, if this ever happened to my kid, like I would go the whole nine, like, I don't care about keeping up appearances. So I would make Mm -hmm. it very clear, like who did this? I would not ask why, because as somebody who's experienced it myself, there's no satisfactory answer to that question. Like there's no answer that would justify the act. So even asking, why did you do this to my child? Like I, or to me, like I, it just, I think it's an exercise in futility and it necessitates a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of therapy in the end, if you're not able to get past that. But, you know, again, going back to, if somebody did this to my child, the whole nine, make it public, call the press, prosecute. I would do all, that would be like my first reaction. So can you tell us what that would look like um, for a client? Like what happens if parents pursue that route? Yeah. You know, uh, these are such difficult conversations and I love your questions as well because they're, they're <laughs> complex and complicated, but um, you know, I, so I, I've got, I've done that before for myself. Do you know I mean, I've gone the whole nine yards for myself and the process in and of itself, if, if you work with, you know, I had advocates working with me um, mm-hmm. is a very traumatic process. It's very traumatic. Um, in my case, I, 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 I didn't have to go to court. I had mediation done. Mm. Um, but even during mediation, I had someone who was a licensed a social, um, uh, worker on, um, it was over zoom because it was over during the pandemic on, on oh, one okay. zoom screen. And then, um, you know, uh, my lawyers with me on the other zoom screen and I would turn the camera off with my lawyers and have a panic attack oh, wow. with, um, you know, my, my advocate and then go back and continue. Mm. And it's very, it's a hard process. Like as someone who's been through it, it's a very difficult process to have to state what happened to you in, in that context and to have it evaluated and to have someone else stand on the other side and cross-examine or question or cast out an aspersion on this. Right. And so for parents who are just kind of like, I, I'm, I'm going to prosecute, I'm going to do this for my kid. I would think, and this is not to say you should or shouldn't, I would think mm-hmm. very carefully about the ramifications of that on your child as well. Is it re-traumatizing? Is this really for your kid? Is it for you? Is it, you know, and I'm not saying that the parents do it for themselves by any means, but I'm, I'm, I'm really like, really there is a secondary like, gain. Yeah. Love vindication. I think so. A little vindication, but also if, if the goal is to do it for your kid, have a conversation with your kid. Like this right. is going to be a hard process. Like, is this something you want? And if they're not in a position, they can have a conversation, like really think about how, how long is this going to be dragged out? How much of time, how much time and energy and emotional labor is this going to cost your child, you know, and, and what's it going to be like for them? Because court cases are also public. Yeah. While, while we might not care if anybody knows, well, I could not want this to be information that's out there about Mm -hmm. them. Do I mean, because it's, it's public, it's accessible. And so it's a hard call. Just because of my experience, I think I was always hypervigilant. So anybody was um, a person of suspicion to me, including my children's own father. And I know that nothing ever happened. And he was like, I can't, like he just learned recently. He's like, I can't believe you suspected me. <laughs> I was like, why not? Like if you have the the things or the physical equipment to hurt my child, like you're a suspect, period. And again, that's not to say that women aren't perpetrators, but I certainly know that the percentages are in the single digits versus men are as perpetrators as in the double digits. But um, he was like, when is this going to stop? Like, how do we make like this? It's like almost 
like it's training grounds for, for perpetrators to like work on your family and figure out like your stuff and then go get married, like just go get married or, you know, why not take away the, I guess, the stigma of masturbation because masturbation is allowed in situations where you don't think you can control yourself, but like incest is not. So like his question was, what do we do? Like he felt so helpless as a man that, you know, my trauma was such that I even suspected him. He's like, how do we end this? Like, when is it going to end? Yeah. I mean, there's I'm so going to pose that question to you because yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't have an answer. <laughs> like, that's the, like the age old question. Right? I think there's so many things that we can do. I think first of all is to normalize that people have desire, right? To just normalize that. So it doesn't always need to, not that transgressive desire isn't fun with consent and whatever, like there's ways to manage that and do that. And that can be great, but to normalize that, like, Hey, these are things that people feel and these are desires and urges that people have. And then to create like safe spaces and like healthy practices and ways in which people can engage in those. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, Hey, you're feeling like you have desire. Like my parents route was to be like, okay, cool. Like, let's get you married now, like young, like let's get you married as young as you like. Yeah. Um, which is also difficult because it's like, that's a major life decision. (laughs) You want to make, cause you're horny, like, or only cause you're horny, right? Like that's also hard, but there's, you know, masturbation is a perfectly okay way for you to engage with yourself and, you know, um, have some release of some of that sexual tension and desire there's ways to engage in it in healthy consensual ways. Right. Um, you know, whether you're engaging it in an Islamic way or not, there's, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do it, right. Have a consenting partner, partner that's all. right. At the very, at the very yeah. base, like we can, because what you're doing with your family is a halal. Is not, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's like, haram you know, too. yeah, you know, I mean, it, like if we're, if we're comparing to having non-consensual relations with a child, mm-hmm. Man, if you're if you're gonna do that, you might as well have consenting sex with an adult or someone it would who's be way more satisfying. Age. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Yeah. And then we can talk about Islam and what's halal, what's haram. But like, yeah. let's go from the bare minimum of like super haram to less haram. I feel yeah. like there are degrees, like <laughs> you know, yeah. and 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 you know, find find ways that are okay for you to sort of practice those needs and those desires. You know, have conversations around them and and create safety for your kids and your for your family to be like, hey, I'm having these thoughts. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's not, sometimes there's not a lot of space to be like, Hey, I'm having these fantasies, even within like halal married couples to be like, Hey, I sort of am, have been thinking about this without mm-hmm. it being immediately shamed and be like, Oh, well that's weird. No, it's, it's not weird. Our brains sexualize things because we are creatures who have sex. That's perfectly normal. Yeah. So be like, okay, cool. How do you want this addressed? Did you just want to talk about it? And if you do want to address, how do we get this addressed in a way that's consensual for everybody and that's comfortable for you. And that is halal, right? There's yeah. tons of ways to get that done, yeah. you know? And I love your point, like the sexual repression, especially in the South Asian community that exists. Um, can we just stop? Like, can we acknowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created these urges and they are halal urges to have? It's just haram to act on them, especially when there's a non-consenting partner, I think regardless mm-hmm. of a- their age, but particularly yeah, for yeah. children. And it is a hundred percent grounds for severing ties because my understanding from a lot of American imams is that this is a legitimate reason to cut off mm-hmm. ties with family members, with perpetrators who have done this, even if they're family, yep. um, even though ties of the womb are so, so important in Islam, um, protecting the vulnerable from oppression is more important. 
And that's what you have to do. So, you know, for anybody who is trying to keep up appearances and keep that person in your child's life, know that it's very damaging for the child to see that, you know, you can understand their sense of betrayal sometimes, their sense of um, perpetuated not feeling safe and feeling hypervigilant growing up. If you do that just to keep up appearances, there will be consequences. And you'll certainly hear about it as your children are getting older. I know that even as an adult, you know, I had to have some frank conversations with my mom and, you know, kind of talk her out of some of the toxic beliefs she still held uh, about what had happened to me. So I really appreciate everything that you have taught us today. Did you have any final thoughts or recommendations to Muslim moms out there who are now on the edge of their seat being like, oh my gosh, what do I do, (laughs) you know, if this happens in my family and how would I deal with it? Yeah. I mean, just create like good practices like you would anywhere else. Teach your kids the names, anatomically correct. Testicles is better than balls, yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Teach your kids what it's like to have consent. We're coming with generational trauma. We're coming from places where in in, in cultures or families even, maybe maybe some cultural where consent isn't always like ingrained as a part of a normal practice. And so talk about consent and talk about boundaries. Mm-hmm. Talk about boundaries, you know, different families have different boundaries, different people have different boundaries, right? And so what level of touch is is okay? And 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 check yourself too. Just like you said, you know, you suspected, you know, your your partner. You can also be like, where am I holding my child from? How am I holding them? What am I normalizing for them? You know, when I hold a child, I'm constantly like, am I ho- holding them from a place that I wouldn't want anybody else to hold them from? And am I normalizing this kind of touch for them? So yeah. just check in with yourself. And that's not like, mm, am I a pervert or am I molesting them? It's just checking in. Just like, you know, you wouldn't go up to an adult and randomly put, the, you know, their a hand on their butt cheek. You would maybe put a hand on their shoulder. Like children are training to be adults. Like, mm-hmm. And so just, you know, sort of be more deliberate, conscious and and consider in your choices and, and what you're teaching. Usually at the end of the show, we do a rapid fire uh, where we ask you more questions to get to know you, but to honor your privacy and show our gratitude, we're going to skip that part. Um, we're going to forego it. Uh, we don't want you to be easily identifiable, but Jazakallah for, for coming on. And we pray that your ties of kinship, whatever they look like now, are healthy and serve you and serve your heart, your iman. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect all of our kids from every evil known and unknown, and certainly from this one that we talked about today. Amen. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.